Welcome to part two of this Ghost of the Movies Boogie Nights podcast. Here you go. Enjoy. Like a big on set and just taking the wind out of the dude's sails, you know? But Brent Reynolds probably said that exact same thing. He probably called the pictures. <laughs> he did, actually. I think I think I there might be a clip, I think maybe he was on Conan or something, where he literally says that. He literally says that. He says that's him. what he yeah. said to Paul Thomas Anderson, a twenty six year old kid making his second movie. Which his first movie is is actually pretty good. It's John C. Riley. Philip Baker Hall, um, but it's very small and it's very tight. And Boogie Nights is a sprawling; it's like an epic, like yeah. it's a character piece epic, you know. Yeah. And Burt Reynolds, your your one of your leads is like, man, you're not so fucking hot, kid. Apparently, like he Burt Reynolds hated Paul Thomas Anderson so much he punched him one time, uh, which uh, Heather Graham in an interview confirmed. Um, but. Burt Reynolds, it was like famously, he was like on a whole nother plane while he was doing that movie, right? I guess. Like, like he was not into it, I, basically. I, I, is that what he said? No, that's what Paul has said. That, okay. Like, I know they that, got in a fight one day and then yes. Burt yelled at Paul. I remember that. Right. Yeah. And then it sounds like though Burt kind of realized years later, kind of like, maybe oh, maybe this was good. I think and, he might have yelled at him and I think I remember that he said, I'm going to rip off your head and shit down your neck. Right. <laughs> I think I remember that's that. That's amazing. That's crazy. By the way when yeah. you're Burt Reynolds you can say that I guess so yeah. huh. is this true that you so were, were, we were even after shooting the movie I'm told that you were so uncomfortable making the movie that after the movie was done before you had even seen it you wanted to hit the director Paul Thomas Anderson you wanted to hit him in the face uh, no I don't want to hit him in the face I just wanted to hit him <laughs> It reminds me of uh, how much Tommy Lee Jones hated Jim Carrey on Batman Forever. Yeah, I so, can't. What do you say? I can't. Like, uh, I can't uh, abide your your something or other. I can't abide your like clownery or something yeah, like that. Like or some shit like that. Yeah. And Jim Carrey was just like trying to say hi to him at a restaurant. And he like yes. grabbed him and he's like, "I cannot fucking. I wish you would die." <laughs> Oh my God! Imagine that. Imagine, imagine being that guy. Like, holy shit! Fuck you, Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> Jim, Jim Carrey is like twenty-eight years old. Like, what did I do? I'm just trying to be in a movie with you, bro. Yeah, he well, stars on the rise, trying to be a trying to like everything's coming together for him. And Tommy Lee Jones says he doesn't want anything to do with him, even though they're in yeah. a movie together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your stars <laughs> on the rise, my stars on the decline. Therefore, I hate you. You you just you you have outacted me in every single scene of this shitty movie, and I am pissed off. That's what Tommy Lee Jones was saying. Ooh, I, oh, well, Tom, I, I don't know. Tommy Lee Jones is pretty fun in Batman Forever. Let's start this party with a bang. He is, but you can see him chasing his tail, trying to be Jim Carrey. Yeah, or try to figure out what the tone of the movie was. From yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's that's it. And okay, mini review inside this because well, we might do Batman Forever one day. I think that'd be um, a fun, like good, like hour forty five minutes. Yeah. 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 Um, Tommy Lee Jones, I think you're right, was grasping at the tone, and Jim Carrey knew exactly what he was in. He knew what movie he was in. Yeah. And I Tommy think Lee movie- Jones was trying to figure it out the whole time. 
Right. I think that the only people on the set who knew what movie they were in was Joel Schumacher, Jim Carrey, and fucking Nicole Kidman. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Which is actually part of what is appealing about the movie is because it's so weird. Yeah. And campy. It's a camp classic, dude. Like, but Batman Forever finds the balance, and then you see Batman and Robin, which completely fucks up the balance. Like... It's just a boring movie. But right. Batman Forever is like a lot of fun. Like it's one of my favorite Batman movies. I know that's heresy to say, but like it is one of my favorites. I think that dude, I had every poster from that movie on my wall when I was a kid. And I you know what? That, that is a great future uh Zubox goes to the movies, the Schumacher Batman movies. Actually, yeah, we should one do yeah. one episode we'll do both of them. Yeah. But uh, you know, fucking what is the complete opposite of Batman and Robin? Is uh, is fucking Boogie Nights by PTA? Yeah, but I mean every scene, but every scene has like just its perfect thing. We you know you know who we haven't even mentioned is fucking Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes. As Scotty J. Scotty J. We actually made a joke reference to the scene the la- in the 25th hour. Uh, the last the last podcast we did, we did a parody of like, I'm such a fucking idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm such a fucking idiot. It's one of the things that uh, probably led me to thinking about this episode because I had put it in my head and then I was listening on Spotify to a uh playlist that i had made when i lived in new mexico which had the song sister christian on it for the reason that i told you before we started recording this podcast that's secret knowledge once i started listening to sister christian that's when i was like dude i gotta check out that scene in boogie nights which we got to talk about the quote the quote-unquote scene uh but well yeah we're gonna do that because we have to because it is all right well (laughs) <laughs> but that's what that's what the be from okay because like Terminator Two I saw on TV when I was having like my dad weekend in yeah. the summer, and when I went to go watch it again I was like ah like I don't know I, I might want to like curl up in the winter time and and finish this and then I was listening to the playlist that I had made in Santa Fe which had Sister Christian on it and I was thinking of the most tense fucking scene. That has in in the history of horror movies and thrillers and fucking dramas, somehow Boogie Nights manages to have the most fucking tense scene of anxiety that's ever been fucking put on film. Oh yeah, it does a better like because there was a movie that came out a couple years ago, the Adam Sandler, the Safdie brothers, uh, Uncut Gems. I don't know if you saw that. But everybody was like, everybody was like, oh, it's like an anxiety attack watching that movie. No, uh, it does not do it. An entire movie does not do it better than the scene. And the, the scene we're talking about is uh, the Alfred Molina scene. I guess you could probably call it. That's probably what we should call it. But I realized this time watching it, I was like, oh, my God. Like, you take all of what you've watched for the, like two hours of the movie, all of the disparate tones that he's able to balance and figure out, and all of it is in that one scene. Yes. The entire movie comes crashing together in that one scene because it's tense it's dark it's funny it's got like it's got like some real sadness to it like it has everything in that one it's isolated you could you could cut that scene in in a vacuum 
and just show that to somebody, and that's a great fucking like little piece. Like yeah. it's so good, I, even I, without I, the context of the characters. Like right. it's so good because Alfred Molina, I don't like just commits so fucking hard, Whoa. just so hard. And uh, we before we were talking, uh, Dan had sent me <laughs> sent me a message on Skype, and he said uh, he said although oh, that's just Cosmo, he's Chinese. Fuck. It's Cosmo. He's Chinese. And I was I was laughing about it because I was like, so it was just funny that you said that, but like it was like he says that as if it explains anything. Yeah, I know. I know. Like everything happens in that scene. There is there is a little boy. There's a little Chinese. There's a little Chinese boy or man. I don't know. And he's just throwing firecrackers. Fourteen, dude. Yeah, and he's throwing firecrackers in the house. Alito like grabs his ass lewdly. Yes. Yeah. And and then rubs him on the head like he's a good boy. Yeah, it's fucking creepy as fuck. Well, he's freebasing and listening to Jesse. I have I, I I never understood why the song Jesse's Girl through all the years gave me such anxiety. Like I never wanted to listen. <laughs> Once I heard that little guitar playing at the beginning, it's like somebody got can you please change this track? And now I watching that scene again, I realized like Jesus Christ, dude, everything about you just want them to leave that room. Just please leave that room. Oh like, yeah! Please get out of there. And all the characters on the couch are like, like John C. Riley's like, the dude, the, the black guy has a gun. We need to get the fuck out of here. Like, all the bodyguard has to do is taste it. All yeah. he's got to do is fucking taste it, which is the first thing that any fucking coke dealer would fucking do when they're buying five fucking thousand dollars worth of coke. Which I looked it up, and that's like nineteen thousand dollars worth of coke in nineteen seven or nineteen eighty four. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fucking money, and the first thing the guy's going to do is taste it. And they're sitting there listening to Jesse's girl, and fucking Mark Wahlberg is zoning out. And you get the impression as he's zoning out that he's, like, thinking back on I, all the things that have led to this moment. Yeah, and he's, I think... He, you know, I've had weird moments in my life where I've, I've, I feel like I've been in that in that situation where you're just like, "What am I doing here?" And it's uh, a for me, it was like accepting the fact that you are probably going to die. Yeah, that's yeah, what he's doing. He's zoning out and he's just staring, and Jesse's girl is rising, and it's playing, and it's such a beautiful moment. And like credit to Paul Thomas Anderson as a director to have the patience. To sit for like a hot thirty seconds on Mark Wahlberg being fucking geeked out, just fucking staring. He he, it's almost a minute, dude. It's like forty nine seconds that he yeah. holds on Mark Wahlberg, and, and and again, he has the music mixed up in the mix of the movie. So if you were watching this on a nice system, Jesse's girl is fucking blasting, dude. Okay, like louder than you've ever heard this fucking song blast. Like Chinese kids throwing off firecrackers. Everybody's free, basically. Tom Jane Alfred is being like, hey, as fuck. And Tom Jane is being fucking weird as fuck all of a sudden. Yeah, and, and with his weird his, when he has that laugh spasm and he just can't yeah, get it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
five grand. What he wants for the fucking coke, and 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 when it zooms in on Mark Wahlberg, all of the dialogue fades from the scene. And you can see that Paul, Tho or not Paul Thomas Anderson, but John C. Riley is like jostling him and saying, like, he's probably saying like, Dirk, we got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah, we, we got to go. But you can't hear any of the dialogue. You just hear Jesse's girl blasting at fucking top volume. And it creates such a dreamlike effect. And, and, and everything in that scene builds and builds. The Alfred Molina keeps freebasing. He keeps freebasing. He keeps freebasing. He's doing one after the other. The song uh, uh, Sister Christian stops in the middle, like right as he's getting really pissed off about I'm just tired of fucking musicians wanting you to listen to the fucking track in the same fucking order. Fuck. And then Jesse's girl starts, and like all these weird, tiny little things just yeah. build it just the flash of the bodyguard with his gun and he's you know dirk keeps looking back at him and he's dumping the coke out and it's like when is he gonna dip his pinky in there and taste it because once he dips his pinky in there and tastes it you know it's over you know the game is up right like so you're die. as no matter how many times i watch the movie i want them to leave the house like yes. i know they don't i've seen yes. it fucking yes. 50 times and, and and the characters know it from the moment that, I mean, the preceding scene is them standing around being like, and Thomas Jane's like, and he's all fucked up on carpet dope, by the way. Which, the carpet the carpet dope bit is one of my favorite little tiny little slivers of the movie. Like, I didn't even really notice it until I listened to it in my headphones as a podcast. It was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do that carpet dope. It makes it a big tub. It makes a little piece of carpet in it. They don't, do, they don't mix that fish scales in it. I don't want fish scales in it. <laughs> but like so he's all fucked up on carpet dope and they're playing he just says he's not gonna check it so we're gonna do the deal we're gonna drop half a key of baking soda into a bag we're gonna walk over there we are gonna <laughs> boom right there this could be a nifty little bit of hustle bustle wait do you have his address fucking read yeah i got his fucking address what? yeah what? okay question sorry hold on what if he tests this stuff out he won't. Well, how do you know that? Because I know he won't. I know he's not going to check it. And that's good enough for John C. Riley and Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, because they're fucking, idiots. They're fucking <clears throat> Philip C. Hoffman is the only one who has the wherewithal to be like, yeah, uh, this is a really fucking stupid idea. And then, it, again, again, one of the best line readings of the movie, which every line reading in this movie is one of the best line readings of the movie. John C. Riley is like, anyway. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs> And, the, and then they walk in, and the first thing that they get to is like a jail cage. Like the, 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 the porch of this drug dealer's house is like a metal door yeah. with another door that's recessed like five feet. What? That's not a mudroom. They're in fucking Los Angeles, okay? That's a cage for humans. And and as I soon I didn't, yeah I never thought of that yeah and as soon as they see it they like they all of them have this primitive response of like okay we didn't plan for this at all oh oh my god I know and but like and just but that's like another testament to like the like Paul Thomas Anderson's craft as a filmmaker like when they go into there the first shot is like the slow pushing and Alfred Molina's in the center. 
and there's the music playing, and there's Sister Christian, and he's just wilding he's around. Just, and like you're like, we are going into some wild territory, dude. Like, it's like with the Wizard of Oz or something. Like, yeah, you're going like, to fucking you, Oz. Right, you, like, push into a whole other world. It's like when, you're right, it's like when Wizard of Oz turns color. Yes, exactly, yeah. In the last couple of weeks since I've been researching this movie, I've been listening to Sister Christian a lot. So every time that Caitlin has walked into the garage and I've been working, she's basically seen me going like this. <laughs> and there's a Chinese kid throwing firefighting. <laughs> well, because, like, I mean, Melina is just fucking owning. And that's why it's, like, I agree with you. I think Tom Jane, you know what? I think you changed my mind. You can reconvince me of myself from earlier today. But, like... I think Tom Jane is really the secret MVP because Todd is an amazing character. I would watch a movie about Todd. Um, but, like, Alfred Molina, you're right. Like, he does not work outside of the context of that scene, but that scene, he is so on. Like, he is just fucking on. And I love, there's a little anecdote. He had never heard Jesse's Girl before in his entire life. Because, you know, Alfred Molina, he's like a stage, he's like an actor. He's like a stage actor. He's yeah, like, you he's know, like an actor's actor. Yeah, he's like he's not hanging out listening to fucking <laughs> Jesse's girl, like so he just spent a day, uh, the day before they started filming because I think they did this in like a day and a half or something, and I uh, just listened to fucking Jesse's girl like on repeat and just fucking just try to get into it because it is so good like that walk up to the stereo. Lately, something's changed. It ain't hard to define. Like when he's just like grabbing at the air, you know, like he's doing like a zombie walk where he's like shuffling back and forward. And he's, like, he's doing the shitty karaoke where he only knows like half of the lyrics. And then he starts going into this thing where he's going like, oh, God, I'm so jealous. Why doesn't she just choose me? Oh, like you, you can tell that, yeah, like Alfred Molina is like having the time of his fucking life doing this scene. Yeah. Like how often as an actor would you get an opportunity to come in, steal a movie? And like, just like, literally steal with, the whole movie. Steal the whole movie, because I imagine, like, I remember being a kid. Like, that was the scene. Like, that was the thing that I remembered, and we talked about all the time was the Alfred Molina scene. Uh, when I was when I was growing up, like, but, um, I had a, I had something I was gonna say, and now it's evaporated from my mind. But yeah, it's 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 like it's really fucking astounding, like how well that comes together in that, it, like I said earlier, like it brings all of the tones of the movie are in that scene. The entire movie is like, that scene is a microcosm of the entire movie. And it kind of made me feel like, I was like, oh, you should be stressed out for like this whole movie. Because this is what this movie is actually about. Right. Like, this is this thing. And the reason why it hit me so viscerally, like I didn't have somebody, I didn't have like a creepy Coke dealer singing Jesse's Girl. I had a creepy Coke dealer playing Guitar Hero. Right. <laughs> and I'm not going to say his name. But we both know the person. Uh, we were at this some weirdo's house, fucking trying to score some coke, and uh, he made us play Guitar Hero with him. And it was like the most intense 
moment of my life because I was just like there was like guns everywhere. There was guitars, and then there was like guns all over the wall, like all like not like not mounted to the wall, like just on the wall, like just sitting on the wall. And we're in this dude's bedroom. He lives with his grandmother who runs a B and B. And we're like in the upper part of this house, blaring Guitar Hero at two thirty in the morning, trying to just buy like a hundred dollars worth of coke. You know, like I I wasn't in that room with you at the time, but I have been in that room with you yes. throughout the ages, and I I bet that you know, it could probably stand beside me. I shouldn't even dox him and fucking mention his name, but like how many Chris when we were teenagers. How many times were we in that room that Sean just described? I mean, yeah. like, like we just, we just, we're just over here for like 150 bucks worth of pot, dude. We just want yeah. the best pot that money can buy right now. Okay, you're the weirdo who has it, and like you said, like we have to play. Like I remember distinctly one time we went over and there was like this weird fish tank and there was a bunch of people hanging around and lots of black lights and he was playing some Ninja Turtle game on Xbox and I was like, dude, like. Asia and Trevor are like out in the car waiting for us to get back with the, with the pot so we can drive around and smoke it and listen to like WKNE or whatever. And like we're taking a long time up here, okay? Mm-hmm. Because we have to like hang out with this dude because yes. he's literally Alfred Molina from Boogie Fucking Nights. And that's the, you know, because that's the thing about drug dealers. They're very isolated. And like when you go to their house, they want you to like hang out with them. And they'll offer you free drugs, they'll do whatever. Like, just to get you to stay there for a half hour. And it is always, like, never... Uh, that was the most, the most like, the, the, the thing I just described, that's the most intense I've ever had, because these people were, like, there was a bunch of people, and they were all geeked out. Like, they were clearly fucking have been doing rails and, like, playing Guitar Hero. And it's 2.30 in the morning, and there's fucking loaded guns and guitars, and I'm just like... What? I'm going to die tonight. I'm going to fucking yes. die. Like, I had that Mark Wahlberg there where I'm sitting yes. on a bed. I'm sitting in some fucking weirdo's bedroom. And he's got, like, a fucking 80-inch screen TV in 2008 playing fucking Guitar Hero. And I'm just like, and there's music blaring. I'm just like, I am going to die. I'm dead. I'm fucking, yeah. I'm a dead person right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know who you are. You know who you are. And you we're, remember this. Or, or you and your best friend are walking around the streets of Montreal with a guy named, what was his name, Philippe or something, and he only speaks a few words in English. He mostly speaks French. And he assured you that he could get you some pot. He knew exactly where to get it. Oh, yeah, you just got to go but, down this weird, dark alley. Yeah. yeah, but now you're walking down the street, and he's just asking random people in French where you can get some pot. And then... He turns back at you and asks if you need him to stab somebody for you. <laughs> but I'm saying that's a situation I was actually in, but I'm saying that I, like we, and again, when you watch this movie as a fucking adult, the Alfred, again, the Alfred Molina character, he is like one of the firecrackers that the Chinese kid is throwing off. You are so, he's so unpredictable. He starts pulling out this guy. You want to see something really fascinating? <laughs> <laughs> and he delivers it in that perfect alfred molina like yeah <laughs> hello peter no, <laughs> uh, i mean he, he's one of the reasons why i'm actually excited for this next fucking spider-man movie just because i get this alfred molina be fucking dr octopus again which is Hell one of yeah. the best comic book performances that ever fucking happened yeah spider-man sees the best comic book movie ever shut the fuck up everybody else
<laughs> no, actually, dude, I agree with you, and let's do a goddamn zoo box that goes to the movies in the future about Spider-Man 2 so that we can fucking oh, yeah. ride hard on MCU people about how that's literally the greatest superhero movie that's ever been made. I am so down. So yeah. down. But yeah, I mean, again, it's the scene. When, when, when I was uh, doing research for the movie, one of the things, one of the links that I saw when I Googled it was titled quote-unquote, that scene from Boogie Nights. And it's that iconic. I mean, you, that's all you yes. need to say, that scene yeah. from Boogie Nights, and you know what the fuck you're talking about. It's the one with the coke, the coke dealer, Freemason, with this Chinese man-boy love child throwing firecrackers, and that huge fucking security guard with the fucking gun hanging out, and, and your three supposed heroes are sitting dumbfounded on the couch, not knowing what to do, coked out themselves, and then all of a sudden Todd starts asking for what's under the fucking bed. In the master bedroom, under the bed, in a floor safe. Understand. What the fuck is the matter with you, Todd? Let's go. Todd, come on, Shut man. up, Dirk. I told you I got a plan. I got a very good plan. Are you kidding me, kid? Nah, nah, see? I'm not kidding. I want what's in the safe. We want what is in the goddamn safe in a goddamn master bedroom and a fucking floor on the goddamn fucking floor safe. That's all. And you're like, Jesus Christ. And even Alfred Molina doesn't think that he's serious. He's like, wait, wait, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Like, and and well, one of my favorite, one of my favorite little bits of business in the movie is when uh, Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley are both like, no, no, hey, dude, we didn't, we didn't under, we didn't think he was going to do this. We had no idea he was going to do this. And then Alfred Molina just he goes like this. He goes, eh. <laughs> he like waves him off. Like, no, don't, don't worry about it. It's not, no, hey, don't worry about it. We'll figure this out. Because yeah, <laughs> Alfred Molina feels like he's he's such a party boy, such a fuck fuck boy. And he feels like he's such in a power, like a position of authority. He's like, nah, Todd's just being crazy. Whatever. Don't worry, I'm going to talk to Todd. Todd, Oh, that guy Todd, yeah, he's just being crazy on the couch. And then Todd just pulls out a gun. You want to freebase a little bit and come down a little bit? No, don't worry about it. And and when Todd says... uh, no, nah. we, you know, he's got, he's got like his coke drips like dripping into his mustache. No, nah, man, we want something else from you. And Alfred Molina's like, what? What do you want? He, he's like, dude, I'll give you the shirt off my back. Like, what do you want? And then <laughs> he wants it safe under the bed in the master bedroom. And he like goes on this fucking rant, you know yeah. what I mean? Describing it. And, oh, dude, that's what I'm saying is Thomas Jane needed like an extra five minutes in this movie. Oh my god! Honestly, Honestly, I I really love Tom Jane. I think he's like he's an actor that like not a lot of people know what to do with, and uh, and he works like fantastically in this kind of context because he can just come in and be like that guy. Like he's not like a he's not a leading man. He's a character actor of like, but like of the highest regard. Like for me, you know. Although there's one movie, and I would recommend it to everybody. It's it's October, everybody. I hope this episode come gets out. <laughs> October. Uh, <laughs> oh fuck. Uh he did uh he stars in an adaptation of a Stephen King uh short story called 1922. It's on Netflix. It's a Netflix movie. It is uh it's really good. And uh Tom Jane is the lead and it's like it's it's uh it's fantastic. I would recommend checking out 1922. Um because he's a he's a good actor. He's so fucking good, and a lot of times he just like gets slotted into weird places where maybe like it's just not like his just doesn't like vibe with his energy or something. I don't know. Although I will always defend the Tom Jane 
Punisher movie. I don't know why. I have like a real soft spot for that movie. Well, I never watched it, but after rewatching this, and I never knew that that guy was Thomas Jane. He was just always that crazy guy at the end of Boogie Nights. But I would actually like to check out Punisher. Um, just yes. off of, I'm probably going to end up watching his Punisher movie. Yeah, it's it's like it's it's goofy, but like I I I have an affinity for Tom Jane. I like Tom Jane, so it kind of like carries me carries me through a lot of that movie. And John Travolta is giving like one of his like completely like phoned in funny performances. Um, because John Travolta is the bad guy in that movie. But oh yeah, maybe that's probably why I never watched it because I was like, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to fucking watch John Travolta stumble through this. He's not. He's not that bad. It's just like a histrionic, like not like John Travolta is another guy. It's like he needs a good director. He needs a good director. Like you know, and I think that's probably true of a lot of actors. Um, but like Mark Wahlberg, for instance, who is. Uh, dynamite in this movie and this is like his first his first real dalliance with like being in a real movie he had been in marky mark and the funky bunch that had been his thing he was the calvin klein model i think he had done he did a movie with leonardo dicaprio the basketball diaries that's why leo actually um suggested mark Wahlberg for the part because he decided to take titanic which history has shown that was a poor decision on his part Although, but, like, I just, I don't think you get, like you said before, like, I don't think you get, like, earlier in the episode, I don't think you get this movie with Leo in that role. You need, uh, Mark Wahlberg can, like, there's an earnestness that I think is required for that character, and there's, like, kind of, like, this, he's really able to put off, like, this dumb, naive person in a way that I don't think Leonardo to, DiCaprio could. Yeah, I mean, Mark, Mark Wahlberg actually has a texture to his personality that's informed by growing up real hard. Yes, which Leo exactly. doesn't. Have. Yeah, well, because he's he was the hungry person, right? Like he grew up in a sense hungry for for success. Where Leonardo DiCaprio is, he's related to the Coppolas, and he started out on a sitcom when he was twelve. Like Growing Pains, everybody. I don't know if you've seen it. It's uh, he was in Growing Pains. That's where Leonardo DiCaprio started. Um, real quick uh, trivia: the first two IZA albums were recorded on the same two-inch tape reel that the Growing Pain show was mixed down on. Oh shit! Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, it was actually named Alex P. Keaton. It had like a little label on it. No way. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, we 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 ended up recording the third IZA album in. Uh, Pro Tools uh, XL or whatever, because at that point Pro Tools had actually gotten like higher fidelity than fucking two inch tape, which was incredible. But mm -hmm. the first two IZA albums were recorded on tape on the same tape reel that mixed down that show, and it was a pain in the ass to record them, but you can definitely hear it in the sound. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, I mean, again, like threading the IZAs aesthetic attention to uh, anachronistic detail. Everything in this movie, the cars, the makeup, the costumes, the wallpaper, the carpet, the couch, the everything is fucking perfect and you get so pulled into this world that you want to be there hanging out with these fucking people. Well, there's nothing that breaks the reality. There's nothing that breaks the reality of the film or, or of the film's world, the verisimilitude. Like it just, it is so perfectly, and it's you know, and going back and watching it, like I realized how, how 
small the movie is. Like, if you really think about how many locations are in the movie, there's actually not a ton. Um, right. But it makes it feel like the whole world. Like, there's just some, there's a grandeur to it, you know? Well, that's just it, is that, like, I think that that speaks to the insular nature of these characters. They all think that they're fucking celebrities. They all think that they are world-changing, top-notch celebrities. They have their own award show yeah. where they all kiss each other's ass. One of my notes says, uh, I, I'm not going to look for it, but it says something like, award shows are all fake, but porno award shows are extra fake. Like they're yeah. literally just kissing each other's asses for coming all over each other. Oh, my God. Like in, in uh, Dirk Diggler's his, uh, acceptance speech is amazing. Wow. I don't know what to say. I guess, well, I guess the only thing I can say is I'll promise to keep rocking and rolling and making better films. You know, things you make these movies, and sometimes, you know, they're considered filthy or something by some people. But I don't think that's true. These movies we make, they can be better. They can help. They really can. I mean that. We can always do better. I'm going to keep trying if you guys keep trying. Let's keep rocking and rolling, man. It's, it's amazing. The same speech that Rocky gives at the end of Rocky 4. Actually, like, yeah. We're going to do better. We're all going to do better. Oh, my God. You're right. You know, it's great because I just actually I, I just recently watched Rocky 4. And uh, that, is, that is dead on. That is fucking dead on. Because it is. It's that corny and that, like... Uh, well, I mean, it's obviously the tone is different, but like it is that corny and like kind of faux sincere and pretentious in a way, you know. Like you know, Jack thinks that he's making art. Dirk, you know, in this interview says, you know, we're saving. He says, I've saved thousands of people doing that, this, thousands and, of marriages. Yeah, yeah. I show guys how to fucking fuck their ladies, man. Yeah, and and Amber waves in the dialogue of the uh, documentary says, "If Brock Landers is slick with a gun." He does so only in the vein of good and right. Brock protects the values of the American ideal and fights for causes that instill pride in a society where morals are hard to come by. You know, he, he fights for the American ideal and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you, you people are so fucking detached from reality. And why do you think that is? Because you're blowing rails 24 hours a day. All you do is come. And you've got more money than God because, you know, you're making porn. How did a 26-year-old write that script? Because that's so, like, that, like, satirical edge to that is so insightful about so many things. Like, it just, it speaks to so many things, even beyond the movie. Like, about just the creation of art and artists and the types of people that do it. And, because I remember, because I was, I watched it, when I was watching it uh, uh, last night, I was, I was falling asleep. I got in the last viewing. And uh, I just was laughing out loud at that that line specifically because I was just like, "This is so fucking, it's so perfect. Like it's too perfect. It's like that's what I mean. Like this movie should not exist. It should not work. Right. Who the like? How the fuck did he put this together? Like how did he do it? Right. And then to be so aloof and fucking cavalier in interviews, like I don't, I don't know. I just you know I just like stories, man. I just like people. Fuck you, dude. Like tell me what you were fucking. Tell me what was going on. Stop lying to Charlie Rose. <laughs> it's, no, I mean, it's like, listen, I think that there are actually pieces of art that have been made in this world that were just 
spontaneous ejaculations that will yes. never be you know even even by extremely great artists you know uh the, the one that i'm immediately thinking of is rumors by fleetwood mac the there's no reason that that fucking album should have ever worked ever in a million fucking years they were on more coke than columbia and okay it's the, and it's an all-timer I mean, it's and, fucking... and they were all at each other's throats, and they all hated each other. And not only is every track on that fucking album perfect, but even the tracks that were supposed to be on the album that got cut are fucking perfect. That's and, a, that, that's one. Actually, we own that on vinyl. Yeah, it's a good and, one. You know, I think the Boogie Nights is one of those artistic, uh, you know, ironically called ejaculations where Paul Thomas Anderson was, like you said, he was at that perfect ripe moment where he was more mature than the Dirk Diggler story. But he wasn't so pretentious as Magnolia, and he was right in that sweet spot where he could mix these tones perfectly. And maybe he didn't even maybe he only knew what he was doing on a reptilian level. Well, if you were to believe uh, what's her name, Fiona Apple, because <laughs> Fiona Apple was dating Paul Thomas Anderson when he made Magnolia, that he kind of actually started being a giant cokehead. Stop it. Stop it. What did I tell you? It's too fucking long, okay? There's too many blow-ups. It's all just too fucking too. Smart enough. Yeah. Boogie Nights wasn't like this. Sydney's not like this. Huh? You want to come back home and be embarrassed in front of them? You're the only child that's too long. Smart enough. Do it again. After Boogie Nights. Which is kind of ironic. Which makes sense if you watch Magnolia. Like, honestly. Like, yeah, it looks like a movie that a cokehead made. Uh, but, like, what do you think of uh, his the rest of his kind of, like, filmography? Because I know we've, I've brought it up a few times, and, like, you're, you're always kind of, like, uh, aloof about it. You don't really, I, like... I mean, other than Magnolia, what did he do? Did he do Punch Drunk Love? He did Punch Drunk Love, and then he take there's a long gap, and then there will be Blood, uh, The Master... Uh, I haven't seen that one, but I you should recommend it to me to check out. I mean, oh, there will yeah. be blood, there will be blood is an absolutely. I mean, again, it's another fucking masterwork. But there will be blood didn't move me on a level where I ever really want to go back and watch it again. Ooh, I'd be really curious to see what older Dan thinks of there will be blood. Me too, because I, it was a movie that I kind of found a bit boring. Yeah, I can understand that. I can totally understand that because his entire like worldview or view as a filmmaker changed it shifted like so there's there's heart eight there's boogie nights there's magnolia that's like a period and then he does punch truck love which is kind of like a stopgap between magnolia and then there will be blood because he gets more minimalist with punch drunk love it's much more low-key minimalist movie which I, I i really like punch truck love and philip seymour hoffman as a sleazy <laughs> As a sleazy, uh, what's it, uh, mattress salesman that also runs call services, <laughs> uh, is he's really great in that. And then he does "There Will Be Blood," which is like a just like that could be a different person making that movie. I mean, there's like, and I feel like he just like shifted where he pulled his inf his influences from. Like, there's a lot of like Robert Altman. There's a lot of Scorsese. There's a lot of stuff like that in Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And then once you get to There Will Be Blood, it's more like Stanley Kubrick. It's like more like ripping off Stanley Kubrick because it's much more quiet, 
and low key and there's just it's all about like kind of it's it's almost like pretentious in a way like and I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest otherwise but man I think you should revisit that as an older man I think I think you would find a lot in it I mean, even as a younger man, I recognized it as a great movie. I think I was just in a period of my life, like I was probably recording like "Lick It or Ticket" with the IZA, and I was more concerned with like writing the lyrics for uh, 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 "Soldiers of the Apocalypse" or some shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was at a different point in my life, and I would probably appreciate it more. But I mean, now that you just rattled off the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson filmography, I mean, a lot of those films are fucking great doesn't seem like he has many misses but boogie nights in particular blends a style and aesthetic a theme that captures my heart in particular because i love the disco era but you love, but you love the disco era but you but you love all of the films that he loves like these are all things that like speak to our lizard brain we like we un, we like intuitively especially coming back to it like as as deeper film fans like we intuitively like understand all of the things he's pulling from even when we don't recognize it uh, consciously it's all like subconscious work on you you know what i mean like and it just sings like and that's like i said before i that's i have always kind of respected about him he's not bashful about it he's like yeah like yeah i, I like really great filmmakers i study them i use their techniques you know, like, and that's something to be said. There's something to be said about that. Like, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think a lot of people, because you know, even myself, like, I, I, as I've gotten older with Tarantino, I've become a little bit more critical because now I am more aware of what he's pulling from. I think Paul Thomas Anderson, who is actually often compared to Tarantino, is actually the better remix artist than Tarantino. I think Tarantino literally he has dialogue like he has his own like style of dialogue but like if you watch his movies and if you when you, when you become more film literate like you understand like he's like literally lifting wholesale scenes characters yeah, right shots like everything is like from something that he had loved when he was a kid which I don't have a problem with but it definitely lessens the effect watching kill bill at 35 is not the same as watching Kill Bill at 16. Like, it's just not. No, you're right. And I think that Paul Thomas Anderson, excuse me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. PTA. PTA, I'm Uh, sorry. Wow. Um, I want to be part of the cool YouTubers who do shitty reviews, who fucking suck and are not Zubox goes to the movies, not half as cute or insightful or clever as we are. That's true. Um, But, uh, I don't know. I, I think that he manages, like you said, to distill these things without actually great, like straight up ripping them off. I mean, there's so much Scorsese in this movie. Oh, like yeah. That style of pulling every scene from one scene to the next with music, with camera work, with color. Just well, like think pull, of, pulling you, pulling you through the story. Think about Goodfellas and then think about Boogie Nights. They're very similar movies. Like the, or, the, 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 I mean, Casino. Or even Casino, Casino oh, which is we've talked about Casino. Go check out our Casino review. Great, which, great uh, uh, Dan and I agree. It is one of the secret com- the one of the best comedies ever made. Yes. It is. It's it, a it's fucking amazing movie. Actually, so is Boogie Nights. I mean, Boogie Nights. Boogie is Nights is hilarious. Fucking comedy. I mean, like I said at the beginning of the episode, me and my brother Jeff used to just act out these scenes as kids why not because they were great drama pieces but because the lines were fucking gold dude it's hot fucking action to the max with this dialogue (laughs) 
Well, that's and that's the great thing about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. He has an appreciation for the lowbrow humor stuff. But he's like so good as a filmmaker, it doesn't read lowbrow, even though it is totally lowbrow. Yeah, like, like when, I when, said, when they're when they're picking out shoes, and Paul Thomas Anderson's like, "Hey, are they uh, are they lizard?" And uh, Mark Wahlberg goes, "No, they're Italian." Like. These are great. Yeah, those are really cool. Are they lizard? No, they're Italian. I'm gonna fucking buy these. Oh my god. Oh my god. The whole thing when they're buying when 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 uh, uh, Dirk Diggler gets famous and he's buying new clothes and stuff and he's like in the club dancing with Roller Girl Heather Graham and he's just like, he's like, yeah, this is imported Italian nylon. That shirt's pretty sexy too. Well, yeah. Well, this is like um, imported Italian nylon. And um, it's like a special edition limited silk print, and it was done by like this really famous um, design artist from Italy. Like I fucking died. I died. And uh, it made me think, you know, it uh, because we grew up poor and we knew people like that. That is the equivalent of a fucking dude from the ghetto buying a fucking pair of Jordans. But also, here's a take that I hadn't thought about before. Eddie Adams is a boober. So he is going to have an appreciation for cheap shit like Italian leather. And like you said, like he's going to think shit like nylon is fancy because it's like a new fabric. It's a new fabric. Like, it's all these social identifiers. Like it's, yeah, he, he, lives, he lives life as a boomer. Just like I, when Tom Jane, when you meet Tom Jane, he's talking about how fucking cool Dirk Diggler's car is. Fucking uh, full fucking race cams. Yeah, I was just gonna put the fucking ten layers of competition orange, hand buffed, full fucking race cams. Wow. Yep. Oh, and the, oh my god. Oh, I know I said it before, but that that push in with the camera and Tom James just like he's got that fucking ball of the beard. He's like, whoa. Like that's the crazy thing. It's like you, and I, I I know you agree with this. Like you've met all of these people. Like we've all met these guys. We've yes. met these people. And that's and it reads so true because like there is like the comedic satirical part of Boogie Nights, but there is but like all good comedy, like all good satire, it speaks to something that you understand, like yes. that you intuitively like understand. You know, like Every, these are like to me, it's crazy that this is California because I'm like this is these are Massachusetts dudes, like, yeah, these are New gonna, Hampshire dudes. Every fucking party that is portrayed in Boogie Nights. I have been at that party, except less cool. Yeah, you've been at the, the, the lame version of it, yeah. Except it was like, yeah, it, was, it wasn't at a pool at a porn star's mansion in L.A. It was in like a barn in Marlboro, New Hampshire. But I was at that same party. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably listening to the same music, too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if I showed up and had my fucking CDs with me, because I definitely had the Boogie Nights soundtracks that I stole from my older brother. But yeah, I mean, I, I, one of my notes here, you know, the, the dreams of boys turn into the nightmares of men. That's, I think, one of the themes of this movie. I don't know if PTA really knew what he was doing, but that's the thesis here. I Like, to me, like, the, the end of the movie, even though it ends with that beautiful Beach Boys song, um, which, if everybody doesn't know and you don't know, is my wedding song. <laughs> Um, is uh, a funny story with that song. I'll probably share off the air, but okay. It's a God only knows, and it's supposed to be this big uplifting thing. Everybody's getting what they want. Did I hear someone say deal? This weekend and this weekend only, 
buck super cool stereo stores making super cool deals on all name brands. We're open, we're ready. All you need to do is walk over, get down, and come inside us. Word. Cut. Excellent. Well, honey, that was great. But, like, if you really listen to that song, it's a very bittersweet song. That's why I don't believe Paul Thomas Anderson, even when he recounts, like, what his intentions were, I'm like, I don't believe you. I don't, you don't put God only knows by the Beach Boys at the end of your fucking movie if it's not supposed to be secretly melancholy. Yeah. Like, that is ridiculous. That is so on the nose. Holy shit. And uh, just, I know, I, I, oh my god, I got like really like animated. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't going to say it, but I mean, that song was given to me, and not only that song, but like a shitty YouTube um, compilation of a bunch of celebrities singing that song was given to me as like a consolation prize at the end of a relationship that I thought was going to be like a great love of mine. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, she sent that to me as like a way to say, like, I still love you, but I actually want to marry a rich, handsome dude. So whenever I hear that song, I think of that, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, is this not the most hollow fucking sentiment? Like, you're right, it's like so bittersweet. It's like, you know... It is, it's a bittersweet song. We literally picked it as our wedding song because we, un- we like understood the bittersweetness of it, and we thought of it with the way we interpreted it, like for a wedding song. It was like, oh, it's like the next stage of your life. It's an acknowledgement of how much you mean to me because of how bad it'll be if we're not in each other's lives. I like, think that uh, <laughs> when, when Caitlin and I get married, our wedding song is just going to be uh, that Jungle Fever track. That's just like a, a boogie, <laughs> like a boogie beat with people just like moaning and coming. I, I get fever, I. There you go. Which, which again, like thirteen-year-old Danny shouldn't have been jamming out to that, but I was. I know, dude. That's why we're like we're we're like this. And I don't know what the fuck happened when we were teenagers, because I think we would have had a lot of fun. We'd probably been productive. We'd probably be like great young filmmakers right now. But like, <laughs> it was proximity. You live in fucking Richmond with the nuns, and yes, that, that's true. Yeah, I didn't go to school with all of them. I, we were interlopers. Paul, big Paul, and I were interlopers. We were like, I don't even weird... know. Can you explain to me how. Like, what was the who who was the chain? The... The chain of connection was that Paul and I joined Civil Air Patrol. Uh, we met Mike Thompson. Okay, Mike there. Thompson talked Artie into joining Civil Air Patrol, which lasted like six months. Yeah. And then um, we started hanging out with Artie. And then it was Parte de Arte. Yeah. And then we just, and that's where we met everybody through Artie, because yeah. Artie's house was the place to go. Right. So everybody went to Artie's house. I remember talking to you outside of Artie's house while you were sitting 
on the hood of your car about Attack of the Clones, and you were just like, <laughs> and a young a young Dan Prophet was like, I don't care what you think. Attack of the Clones was amazing. It's my favorite Star Wars movie. <laughs> Uh, 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 adult Dan Prophet still fucking thinks that. Like when, okay. when Yoda pulled his lightsaber out, it was one of the funnest fucking moments I ever had in a movie theater. Yeah. And I don't, give it, I don't give a shit if it doesn't make sense. I don't give a shit if it's stupid as fuck. It's fucking Star Wars, dude. When Star Wars was Star Wars. And, not and that was some the great sort thing of... about the prequels is that they came out when I was still young enough to fucking appreciate it and be like, dude, this is just fun. Yeah, no, well, I, like, I understand, like, the criticism of the prequels, but, like, I, like, just like you, like, we were young enough where they're they actually part and parcel with the Star Wars experience for our youth. Like, yeah. so we, like, we kind of accept them, and you know what? And then when the prequel, when the sequel trilogy came out, it actually made me double down on the prequels and be like, oh, yeah. there is a difference between real Star Wars and this. Yeah. Like, and I, this I, bullshit. I the prequels came out at a perfect time where I was young enough to appreciate the fact that it was stupid and fun, but old enough to to realize like like nobody's putting the brakes on George Lucas behind the scenes right now, and that's kind of okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because well, that's the uh, if people go and and listen to the Red Letter Media reviews, that's basically their main thing. It's just like nobody had the gumption to tell George Lucas like this. Maybe this doesn't work. After the rough cut screening of the movie for the first time, everyone in attendance looks just as baffled at the clusterfuck as we were. George admits to throwing too much out there. I may have gone too far in a few places. Um, yeah. The editor then attempts to explain pacing and why four scenes with totally different emotional tones don't work well together. In a space of about 90 seconds, you know, you go from lamenting the death of, you know, a hero to escape to slightly comedic with Jar Jar, you know, to Anakin returning with his... But he kind of realizes he's wasting his time, so he stops. Rick McCollum is frozen in utter shock at how horrible the movie was. Internally, he regrets not challenging Lucas on some of the things he was worried about. Lucas then realizes that he can't remove major segments of the movie in editing because they're intertwined. I mean, I've thought about this quite a bit, and the tricky part is you almost can't take any of those pieces out of there now. Because each one kind of yeah, takes, takes you, you to the next place, the next and you can't, you can't jump. Because no, you don't love it. Hey, it's too late now. Later on, after everybody started drinking, Lucas attempts to explain his newly minted bowel movement as bold and extreme, stylistic. It's stylistically designed to be that way, and you can't undo that, but we can diminish the effects of it. No one looks like they know what's going on, and they all look like they're about to start pointing fingers. But that's just my interpretation of this footage. I wasn't there. And like it's you know it's a weird thing it's like I can see all the criticism. I can even agree with it, but I don't really care. Like I yeah. I'm I'm good with the prequels like I always have been. They're a part of the rotation when I go through Star Wars like every couple of years. I watch the prequels just like I it, watch the originals. It's funny that you mentioned Attack of the Clones specifically in relation to Artie's house because one of the very clear visceral memories that I have of that era was driving around in the links that little red car with across the stars which is the john williams theme of attack of the clones burnt onto a cd like thinking of some creative project that i was doing that's inspired by this track from a new fucking star wars movie bro 
Oh my God, Paul! Big Paul pulled it out because I remember. I remember we all used to talk about our future endeavors, and uh, I, Dan had two. You have the you have the vampire movie. Oh yeah, it was actually Colin's movie that I was just in. Well, I remember us going to the quarry and Dan going like this. <laughs> now that you mention it, I do too. <laughs> we were gonna film a big. We were gonna film a big scene where I was like in a leather coat. Yes. With two swords on my back, and I was gonna fucking flip off the quarry. Which is, dude, it's insane. It's insane that you have that stuff as a teenager. Because before I met you, and I know Big Paul can confirm this, I had, I was writing a book, or a a script. I don't know what it was gonna be, but Big Paul used to talk to me about it all the time. It was about vampires that also like. Mine was a little different because I was like informed by Anne Rice. I was like, I had just seen an interview with a vampire, and I was like, oh, I want to do a vampire story that's like through the ages, through history. No, and I, and I was and I was a Catholic kid, so I'm like, oh, like he was alive when Jesus was alive, like just like stupid hack shit like that. But no, the thing I, I was, wanna, the thing was, for some reason, I, everybody knew karate, and everybody fucking like <laughs> everybody had swords, and I was just like. <laughs> And I'm thinking back on it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I uh, we we wanted to make I wanted to make a Blade movie where I was Blade, where like chubby fourteen year old Dan Prophet was Blade. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and that's the difference between us and Paul Thomas Anderson. Okay. Yes. Well, well, you know, Dan though, you saw the Dirk Diggler story. Horrible. That was, that was it's horrible, but that would have been like say if we were eighteen and we had the we lived in the environment where we knew people that would be game for that, completely possible, completely yeah. possible. And, and we would have thought it was classic to this day. Yeah, I I tried to make a mockumentary in like in in the Dirk Diggler story form about an old disco dancer that had one last shot. At like winning a dance competition, and it was going to be about him, how he failed as a young man to win a dance competition and how it destroyed his life, and that like the person that beat him at the dance co competition was the person that was like the 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 winner of the like the year, and he was going to come back and he was going to dance that person's kid to beat them. It was called Dance Commander. It was based on an Electric Six song. Yes. And and uh, DJ, do you remember DJ? Yeah. Kate's friend? Yeah. She was supposed to be my nemesis. So I was I had like all the old old hair makeup and I wish I still had the stuff cuz it was like on like mini DV. I filmed like a lot of stuff and never did anything with it and she ghosted me. She ghosted my ass when it came to film her stuff. And then it just like never, like just like life happened. It just never like coalesced. It just never yeah. came back. Well, I, listen, I love Daniela, but she's always been too hot of a bitch for anything. Yeah, I know. And uh, I can totally see how that happened. But yeah, I mean, dude, we had we had fucking footage of laced cigarettes filmed. That's what it was. It was like somewhere on the somewhere on tape out there is like footage of Josh Josh's dad like playing a character in laced cigarettes. Yeah, <laughs> I, 
Dude, I remember being at Artie's house. I'm sorry, everybody. Everybody loves this. Uh, I remember being at Artie's house and like you talking to me and Paul about lace cigarettes and about the opening scene of all the drugs that like, you were gonna do and right. what, how the the clock would move. Yeah, it would be all black and white. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think that this is part of the Boogie Nights conversation because this is us. I mean, this is us and our inspirations and our ideas as young filmmakers. And Paul yes. Thomas Anderson actually took those seeds. Uh, it would be as if you know, I took the unfinished version of Lace Cigarettes and then actually made it into a real movie fifteen years later with like Burt Reynolds starring. I know, isn't that? Yeah, that's what's crazy. It's like, okay, he got to make his dick off. Fucking, I'm 18. I'm making a movie, but he had enough connections to get a few people that like were actors. Like even the wo woman that plays the um, the porn, the, like the female porn star that talks about Dirk Diggler, is somebody I recognize. I don't know her name, but I have seen her in other things. But yeah, like, <laughs> it's not like we were robbed of anything, but like. It is, like, so much of life is about decisions that you don't make. Like, especially when you're young, like, that or those early goings. And it's about, like, if you can see that through once you have the ability to make those decisions. And it's, uh, which is a much more treacherous road. And, and uh, just not to have those, like, like, I can imagine, like, you or myself as teenagers, if we had had access to, like, actual, like, people that were, like, really into it, actors stuff like i guarantee you we would have done something we would have done something i don't know if it would have been good if it ever would have like if we would have continued forward with that but like every independent person any independent young filmmaker knows the hardest thing to do is to get anybody to fucking actually do it with you right like, that is so goddamn hard all your friends everybody's like yeah of course i'd love to be in a movie whatever and it never happens they don't actually feel that way I remember at the end of like my third grade year, I wanted to make a movie. Okay, let's let's go way back. Let's hit the fucking way back machine. On the regular Nintendo, actually it might have been on Super Nintendo, there was a video game called Out of This World. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it was badass as fuck. It was way ahead of its time. And I had so much fun playing that game. I wanted to make a movie version of it. And at the end of uh, my third grade year, I put like flyers on everybody's uh, desk that said I was having auditions for this movie that I was making. And I remember waiting on that day for the kids from my class to show up to the audition for my movie. Nobody came. Mm-hmm. And it was it was one of the, you know, if you're out there listening to this, it sounds like a sad story. But as a uh, creative artist throughout the years, it was great to have that experience early on because it showed me that nobody fucking cares about your creative project. No. And you need to be the driving force behind it. And that's why movies are the hardest yes. creative project for a young developing artist to make because a movie requires so many different people to be at the same place at the same time on board, knowing what they're doing 
way more than it takes to record a song, especially with today's technology. And, you know, you can never, as a young creative person, get all those people in the space, at the time, acting well, in character, with the right lighting. It's fucking impossible. It, it is, yeah. If you don't have like people that are committed in the same way that you are, for sure. I actually, I remember having a conversation with you when I was eighteen. We both lived in Alston. You were heavily pursuing music, and I had not let go of the desire to like make a movie. And I remember you just being like, yeah, "Dude, it's impossible." Like it's so hard. Like, how are you going to get everybody? Like, how are how like how can you possibly wrangle people to do this? And like and, and like you know, and it wasn't like you didn't say it in a mean spirited way. And I'm not suggesting that you should remember this conversation at all. I think it was like a, you had a Halloween party that I showed up really late to, <laughs> and I had just gotten, I had just like written like a little short script. And I had gotten some people that, like, maybe I thought I could do it or whatever. And it never happened, obviously. And, well, I, uh, I, and you were just like, you were just like, yeah, that's why I just started to focus on music. Because it's just an easier road. Like, that's such a hard road. Like, I can't, like, how are you even supposed to get people to do things with you? Right. And I, it's crazy that you bring that up because I don't remember that conversation. But I can see it happening because when we lived in Alston on the same block, randomly. Yes. Um, <laughs> it was random, completely when random. When I was first booking shows with the IZA, and I was learning these hard truths about the entertainment industry, but when you're a young person and, and a creative person, you have, these, you have that dream, that Dirk Diggler dream of the neon sign with your name that's sparking and flashing. It's so powerful that people just can't even fucking imagine it. And then when you put yourself out there, you're met with the reality that nobody gives a fuck about what you're doing and you're actually not that good. And one of the things that I remember, one of the formative fucking experiences of my life was when I lost a show. Do you remember a place in Boston called the All Asia Cafe? Mm-hmm. A lot of shitty local bands played there. The IZA played there a few times because it was like one of those entry-level venues that you'd play as a young musician in Boston. And I booked a show there and like kind of showed up. I forget the exact uh, uh, parameters of the situation, but the guy, the guy's name was Mark, Mark Shulman, who ran the place. And I kind of waltzed in there one day. I was like, oh, my show this weekend, my show this weekend. And he was like, dude, you don't have a show this weekend. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, we talked about it via email. I booked it. He was like, no, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. You've got to put flyers up. You've got to come in here with, like, promotion for your show. Yeah, and we're then, not going to do it for you, yeah. Yeah, and he called it, um, what the fuck did he call it? The flake, the flake tax or the flake, the flake something. He said, you know, so many kids email me for a show and then we put up a date and then like the band doesn't show up or nobody shows up or anything. He's like, you've got to put, you call it a flake insurance or something like that. He says, you got to come in here with a flyer. You got to tell me your show's actually real. You got to let me know that you're going to show up with a fucking band. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And, and like he, the fact that he just cut me without even thinking about it. And like I walked in there and he told me like, dude, you didn't even show up in here with a flyer for your fucking band. Who do you think is going to show up for your show? Yeah, and I had never even thought of that. But it was the first show that I had ever booked in Boston. I was like, "What do you mean? People are like, people want stuff to do on a Friday night, right? They're going to show up, right?" Yeah, 
And, yeah. and like your, re your reaction to that is perfect because it's like, no, kid, nobody's going to show up to the All Asia Cafe that's a, a, a three-quarter mile walk from the nearest tea station in Cambridge, Massachusetts to see your shitty fucking band. Nobody's going to show up to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and meeting with that reality is something that all young creatives have to meet with. And in the, in the context of this movie, they, they never actually meet up with that reality because they're within this little insular group that gives each other awards and shit. So Which they just feel like they're celebrities. It's crazy to think of all of the people that don't meet Jack Horner's <laughs> fucking... You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, because like, there are so many people probably like in the periphery of this movie, of the reality of this movie, of these characters that like aren't that. And you get a little preview of that with Johnny Doe. Yeah, uh, or, or like, I mean, that, that girl that showed up with the colonel to the party looking for coke, she probably thought she was going to be the next big star. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, I, and we've all been there, and especially like, I can speak just to that reality, like you're speaking of as uh, being in a band. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a very oh boy, it's uh. Dude, speaking of the All Asia Cafe, one time me and Chris Plotzik walked into the All Asia Cafe, and by that point it was a few years later, and we had been kind of an established band in Boston. We were established as a bunch of fucking clowns that were never going to go anywhere, but we were an established band in Boston, and we walked to the All Asia Cafe, and the kid that was running bar there that night pulled out three shot glasses, and he put them out, and he poured, and he goes, I. Z, A, and poured them out, and, and then it he made gave you feel so good. Chris and we all took a shot together, and it made me feel like I was Axel fucking Rose, dude. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god, I yeah, I remember that shit. I remember that shit. Going to the there was a there was a bar called the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, no, it was a different one uh, uh, than than the one in Boston. It was in Anchorage, Alaska. Anchorage, Alaska. Anybody, if you guys want to go start a band, go to Anchorage, Alaska, because you're gonna get. Uh, more than you deserve, faster, and you're going to fall on your ass, and you're going to feel real stupid, because <laughs> there's just like it's Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, so you get to play the big venues, and it's the same, it's the same shit. It doesn't matter. It doesn't Dude. matter. Like try to get, try to convince a venue to like book you again if nobody comes. Like just that kind of shit, you know, just that kind of normal band shit. But but also being in that small little community, like there was a show we, – we booked a show at Harper's Ferry, which was at one point in Boston, like one of the nice venues that like yeah. if you – like if you were playing at Harper's Ferry, that was an important show for your band mm -hmm. if you were on our level. And they switched us from like the 9.30 slot to like the 12.30 slot. They pushed us back like two and a half hours or two or three hours or whatever. And I remember Chris and Alan – had driven two hours from New Hampshire down to Boston for the show. And when they switched us for that slot, we walked the fuck out of there with our equipment like we were fucking poison in 1987. Yeah. We walked the fuck out of that show, which would have, you know, even playing at 1230 at Harbor's Ferry would have been great for us. Yeah. Well, because but, you, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's like, you know, the, these characters in this film, they all think that they're fucking celebrities, but then in the in the last third of the movie, they're all met with reality. Everybody thinks that they're fucking clowns or nobody knows who they are. Dirk Diggler asks the guy who he's jerking off for, do you know who I am? And the guy's like, no. Oh, I just think you're a... I just think you're a queer prostitute. And what's, he, the, the, there is a fun... There's an unintentionally funny part about that scene 
<laughs> when dirt can't get hard. Come on. I can't. I can't get it hard, right? I just can't. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's when the dudes come out from behind and like go to assault him. So like yeah. when I yeah, first because it goes it, it goes like, on for a while. <laughs> is is the subtext of the scene that these dudes are showing up to beat him up because he can't get hard? Like, <laughs> well, honestly, kind he of can't get hard. So his buddy signaled his other buddies. And they're gonna come around like you should have gotten hard, you dude. Got hard for my friend Chris. Like no, well, I think that is like the meta subtext of it. Actually, I think that is the meta subtext of it. Like not in the scene, but in the in in terms of like subconsciously, what we're supposed to take away from it right. is that Dirk has fallen. He's fallen right. so far that he can't even get hard anymore. Can, he can you can't believe even it? do that thing that at the beginning of the movie was his like level one thing. Yes, exactly. Well, that's there is a there's a there's a fun par oh fun. There's an interesting parallel that he's doing it again for ten dollars. That's yeah. what he. That's where he starts. Right. So there's a suggestion that he's like back to where he started. Even though he's done all these things, he's had all this money, he's owned these cars, but he's still a kid pulling out his dick and jerking and off for ten bucks. It's the same with Roller Girl that you know she she is doing this video, this amateur video with the guy that was making fun of her at the beginning of the movie. She can't escape the judgment of this dude. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Which is, oh my god. I mean, like, what in terms of a scene that is actually, like, almost as, as intense as the Alfred Molina scene, but for different reasons, right. is, the, is the sequence, the parallel, like, the parallel action sequence of, of Dirk jerking off in that truck and the stuff that's going on with the Roller Girl. And that, that beautiful piece of music that is just so dread-inducing, that, like, bomb, bomb. <laughs> The the, uh, the bells are tolling. The bells are tolling. Like it's so yes. fucking. The underrated score of this movie that you know it's it's overshadowed by the incredible disco soundtrack, but you know the few scenes of this movie that rely just on the score, particularly that scene, absolutely incredible. Yeah, the bell tolling. Which is it's a is it's a first time first time. Uh, first time guy doing that in the music department. Uh, John Brian, Brian, J John Brian. First time, also first time editor. The guy that edited edited this, uh, Dylan Ticknor. I don't know what else he's done, but this is the first thing he ever actually like completed. Oh, but he's got some. He's well, well, okay. He's worked with Paul Thomas Anderson again. There will be blood. He edited that. He edited Zero Dark Thirty and Broke Back Mountain. So he's done some stuff. He's got a couple movies coming out. He's got a Marvel movie coming out because that's what happens to all talented people. They want to go make a buck. <laughs> Did Eternals. Hey, listen. Hey, I'm not trying to win an Oscar. And I'm trying not trying to reinvent the wheel. I want to make a dollar and a cent in this business. Check. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you stay one step ahead of the game. It means I need to make a, a Marvel movie, Jack. <laughs> I'm talking hot fucking superhero shit to the max, Jack. Floyd Gondoli has tried to convince Jack to make a Marvel movie. One of the and uh, to pull randomly now because I'm going to start pulling from my notes. But Floyd Gondoli equals the inescapable change of time, the thing that we talked about in the 25th hour. Yeah, well, you're right because that's 
you know, that, and this is something we haven't we haven't talked about at all is the historical context of this story. Like, it is actually about a a period of time that was a transitionary period for the porno industry, where right. they had a sense of authority, they had a sense of like integrity, of value, because they were quote-unquote filmmakers. That's what Jack is always talking about in the movie. You come into my house, my party, to tell me about the future. That the future is tape, videotape, and not film. It is amateurs and not professionals. I'm a filmmaker. That's why I will never make a movie on videotape. I'll tell you something else. I will never, ever loan out any of the wait, actors wait, wait, that wait, I have wait, wait, to you. Because their movies are played in theaters. Uh, and it's probably like, you know, the same sentiment. I guess you could probably kind of extrapolate that to the idea of like the difference between a television actor and a TV actor, right? That's how they feel about it. Well, they used to feel about it. Not so much these days, but yeah, I mean, and, and since we're pretty deep into the episode, I just want to read, I want to read a quote from history that was from an actual, because one of the things that this uh, movie doesn't go over is, uh, you know, a specific group of people who were very deep into the pornography business in the 70s. And one of the quotes that I wanted to read from a guy named Al Goldstein was, the only reason that Jews are in pornography is that we think Christ sucks. Catholicism sucks. We don't believe in authoritarianism. Pornography thus becomes a way of defiling Christian culture, and as it penetrates the very heart of an American mainstream, its subversive character becomes more charged. Now, I'm not saying that there's any political or social thing behind porn. I'm not saying that pornography has been used as a weapon before in wars, specifically by a certain country. But what I'm saying is that pornography is a thing that's used as a cudgel against culture. And that's one of the things that's not really exposed in this movie. It's one of the things that's not really gone over is how pornography is used as a weapon against the American male and our masculinity. Well, yeah, it, it, I think it does, like, if you were to have a more mature de- reading of it, like, maybe de facto it does that. Like, if you have our perspective on some of the characters, the predatory nature of Jack Horner, that's why, like, I don't know, like, how much of it is intentional or how much of it is, like, that we will, like, we kind of read into it. But, of course, uh, pornography is a, a wildly destructive force in the world. And I'm not, and I'm, I am not speaking as some sort of, like, prude or some sort of person that is never indulged or doesn't indulge in pornography to be on the real. Like, it's just like, but I know what it does. Like I have enough self-awareness to understand how it operates, how it affects your life and how it actually rewires people. We have an entire generation of people that have been completely sexually rewired by pornography. Look, uh, full disclosure, since we're like like more than two hours probably into the podcast right now, I'm one of those fucking people. I had to fight a pornography addiction. I had to, and I still do. I mean, I mean, pornography potentially could have permanently altered the person that I am. Yeah. No, and I, I, I am not. I'm. I completely understand. It's no longer a titty flick that you pay, you know, a a, a dollar and a quarter to see Floyd Gondoli. Yeah. Little, I'm not trying to make a dollar and a cent in this business. I like simple places like. Butter in my ass, lollipops in my mouth. That's just me. That's just something that I enjoy. Call me crazy. Call me a pervert. But it's a fucking is ten thousand videos on your cell phone that um, you know there there are videos that are literally made to hypnotize you and fuck you up in the brain. Okay, out there, and it is a completely different situation 
and I, you know, yes, my views on pornography have changed as an adult. Yeah, because you go from like a libertarian perspective as a younger person, you're just like, oh, whatever, you know, like it's it's sex, it's it's whatever, like it doesn't matter, like it doesn't matter, whatever. But then you start seeing like you can watch patterns, you can watch trends of how that stuff is just like it's just like anything that works on an algorithm, and how corrosive that is, how corrosive that is to human beings. Right, and the question becomes like, do people like, did people like Al Goldstein know how corrosive that was? It sounds like from what they said, they knew exactly how fucking corrosive it was. I mean, probably from their perspective, like, right, it would have been like the corrosiveness would have been way more mild than it actually has become. Because, like, now everything's about like incest porn. Uh, even though it's not really incest, but that's the titling. That's yeah. like, that's the perspective. You have like magazines like Teen Vogue encouraging girls to have fucking anal sex all the time. Like, like, like whatever. Like I'm not do what you want to do out there, everybody. I don't like, know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've had plenty of anal sex. I'm not saying I haven't, but like, I think preaching to anal uh, <laughs> preaching to teenage girls that you should let boys fuck you in the ass. Because it's empowering or some sort of weird thing, it's actually not. It's it's actually not that. It's actually pretty. Uh, you gotta have some respect for yourself. If that's something you want to do, go for it. Like I, whatever. But like telling kids to do that, encouraging children to engage in that behavior, that's completely fucked up. It's completely fucked. The whole sexual liberation movement has exploded, and it's fucking has shown itself to be the deceptive charlatan thing that it maybe always was. This idea that you find actual identity and meaning through sexual congress is probably is pretty shallow, first of all. And second of all, like it, it's it doesn't it they're not teaching you to enrich your life or find some somebody that you can have like meaningful relationships with. It's saying just like, oh use your body. Dude, it's just for pleasure. It's just for pleasure. What are you talking about, Sean? This stuff has saved thousands of people. I've gotten thousands upon thousands of letters, you know, from people telling me, God, you've taught me this, and you've made our love life so much better. And this isn't, you know, go out and have sex with 10 million people and, you know, how to get a girl off. It's about how to get your wife off. You know, if, if only, you know, people could have been doing this before, we could have saved a million relationships. You know, I've saved thousands. Oh yeah, well exactly. I've so many marriages, you know, guys. Guys now they know how to fuck their wives hard. They know how to fuck their wives slow. They, you know what I'm saying? Like they know. Like I have done a lot. I've done things. It's just like when Napoleon was the king of Greece. <laughs> yes, and that's you know, and that's another undercurrent, another like little subtext of the movie is how fucking stupid everybody is. Yes, even. Even Eddie's mom, even Dirk Diggler's mom, they can't even articulate something deep. Right. They're, all they she, can, like, all they can do is lash mom, out, and be like, "You're stupid. Yeah. You're, you're so she stupid." Doesn't even, she doesn't even have the vocabulary to articulate to her son what makes her angry about her son. Exactly, and you see that kind of like the, it's a weird inversion of the concept of impotent rage, because that's his mother, and it's interesting. Like I, I think the woman's name is Diane Gleason, the woman that played uh, that that character. And uh, she just kind of intuitively like thought that 
Paul Th- this was about Paul Thomas Anderson's mom. And while they were on set, she went up to him and said, you know, you don't ever have to forgive her. You can just move on. Like she, she just like out of the blue said that. Because it's so visceral. Like that scene is so visceral. Don't do that! Why you're not going to be doing that! Because you're just joking! I'm not stupid! Yes, you are! Please, please, don't fucking do that! Please, just don't be mean to me! I'm not being mean to you! You're just too stupid to see it! You don't know what I can do! You don't know what I can do! What I'm going to do! What I'm going to be! You don't know I'm good! I have good things that you don't know about! No. And I'm going to be something! I am! Don't be fucking you fucking tell me I'm not! And we, it's I think so we've, heartbreaking, dude. And we've uh, not. I've never felt that. I've never been like dressed down like that by any of either of my parents. Um, but like, I can imagine it. Like I understand. Like I can imagine why that would ring true. You know what I mean? Like you could feel the truth in that. Yeah. In in that situation, and like, and they do so much to show you that like, Eddie is a boy. Like yeah. one of the one of the great moments in the movie and the movie is littered with these great character building things that they don't draw your attention to specifically is that 360 view around his room And showing you like how young and naive, and how he's what he likes, and all the things he's into, and it shows you so much as an audience where you don't even really consciously register it, you know. And 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 that overture is playing that song called Joy, yeah, which is one of my favorite songs from the soundtrack, and it just it, it literally is. If, if if you're an audience member out there listening right now, listen to that song Joy. It is the embodiment of the feeling of joy. It is so ascendant and 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 bright and like wonderful to listen to, and it's just panning around his bedroom, and that's Eddie's space of joy. The cars, the action stars, the the ladies with their big tits, and he is just a teenage boy. Yeah, and then he's in the mirror pretending to be Bruce Lee. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Like it's and, just and, it, and you and I both have been him in that moment. Of course, one hundred percent. Probably older and more embarrassingly. Yeah, <laughs> like you wanted to be that guy, you know. And it's almost like his mother is intimidated by the man he's become, because maybe because or not because, but her husband is such a fucking pushover. Yeah, her son is becoming such a fucking hunk of a man, and she can't conceptualize. That he's got something special about him because he's something completely unlike she's got in her life. But it's also just like this, uh, even she just needs to have control. Like this yeah. domineering uh, domineering over men. And right. maybe you could read into that, like maybe she's maybe her father was abusive. Maybe there's something like that in her life. Yeah, and she has this deep control over her husband, and her son is growing into this masculine flower. 
that yeah. she cannot contain and she's losing her mind over it. Yeah, and she she despises it. She despises this idea of like self-actualization, being comfortable in your own skin, being sexual. In, in, in terms of the movie, I think also uh, being uh, sexually articulate. You know, like being he's he's good at having sex. Yeah, and 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 it's clear that his father is not. Yeah, and there's he's a, almost he's beta. This sort of like beta. His, beta. If you really want to get Freudian about it, there's almost this um, assumption that that Eddie is the man that she always wanted but never could get, and then she's replaced by this new mother who will fuck her or who will fuck him. Yeah, it's edible. Yeah, it's very edible, and like, and that's and I think that that's uh, it comes into the idea that he was twenty six when he made this, because that is the kind of things you're gonna pull from. Yeah, he's, he's like, oh yeah, the edible complex. Yeah, that's cool. Like we're gonna fucking we're gonna we're gonna operate in that. That's what he's never he has never confirmed or denied anything about like his own parents or anything like that. So I have no idea. If he actually was drawing some real life experience, but I I think I I don't I have a feeling no. <laughs> uh, he seems pretty well rounded, honestly. Like he's like he's he's one of these <coughs> secret Chad cool guys who like he's married to um oh what's her name? Uh, she was on SNL. Uh, PTA's wife. What's her What's his name? Oh my God, she's really funny too. Uh, would Norman Donald say that she's funny? Maya Rudolph. Maya Rudolph. He's married to Maya Rudolph. Oh, okay. he, has, he has three kids with Maya Rudolph. And Maya Rudolph is like she's funny. Yeah, she's cute. And she, and she's funny. Like I, I think Maya Rudolph is funny. Like I'm not, you know, she's not like she's not Norman McDonald. but like she's she's like she's a funny comedic actress. Yeah. And she does a lot of lowbrow stuff, which is like makes me laugh a little bit because in the past, Paul Thomas Anderson is he's all about like Adam Sandler movies. Like he's always like he's like yeah, Happy Gilmore is like my favorite movie. And you're like you know, really? You're, you're <laughs> funnier than Maya Rudolph, though. Dudes, dudes, any dude. <laughs> Sorry, that's 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 a that's a Norm Macdonald joke. Rest in power, Norm. Or, oh, what's her name? Who's who's uh, fucking Amy Schumer? First of all, Amy Schumer came from last time he's Amy, Amy Schumer. I consider. <laughs> I consider Amy Schumer the funniest person on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> if you take me out of the equation. <laughs> no, I meant me. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, why why I was, that's why you were. That's I was clearing my throat. Yeah. <laughs> Not you. I thought you were clearing your throat for me. No, no. no. <laughs> no, I'm taking you out of the equation. <laughs> yeah. But you're funny in a different way. Yeah, you know? thank you, buddy. <laughs> he went around for like two years saying, I think Amy Schumer is the funniest person on the yes. planet. Yes. As, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that was a bit. Dude, that's, that's why Norm MacDonald possibly is the greatest comedian that ever lived. Because, yes, he went around the world going on famous talk shows talking about how Amy Schumer was the funniest person alive. And he fucking hates Amy Schumer. <laughs> but that's, dude. Imagine that's having that that kind of commitment to anything. <laughs> like, I adore that. I adore, like, in the same way, I adore Paul Thomas Anderson's commitment to like what he's doing. Like, it's just like, 
you don't care, dude. Like, you're going to go do it. Like, Paul Thomas Anderson is going to walk into the executives at New Line and say, like, no, I'm doing it. I'm making an NC-17 three-hour movie. Fucking take it or leave it. And Norm right. MacDonald is going to, like, just be Norm MacDonald. I'm going to do anything to make you laugh. I don't care. I'm going to say that I would be hypnotized by Hitler. Like, he doesn't give a shit. You know? Bunch of commie, commie fucking gobbledygook. Yeah. Sarah Silverman's face when he drops that is just too good. It is too good. It is too good. Like, oh my, that whole, like, if anybody wants to know what we're talking about, there's a, like, it's like a YouTube comedy, like, showcase. Look up Norm MacDonald YouTube, and you'll find uh, this this display. And the whole, it's like 45 minutes of material, and it's all him just, like, low-key lambasting what he's doing. It'll be fun. Hey, Norm, thanks for dressing up. Hey, yeah. Sarah, listen, man. Uh, congratulations! That's the hundredth time that joke's been done tonight. <laughs> but I also want to tell you, I have a I have a bet with Daniel Kellison, uh -huh. a rather large figure. Daniel uh, Kellison, who put this whole thing together, yeah. way Wait, over bet? his head. He, he says you can. He says you can explain what the fuck Jash is. Jash is. Uh, uh, pay up, fucker. Jash is a, a comedy collective, a, a, a United Artists, if you will, oh. uh, uniting myself, Reggie Watts, Michael, Sarah, and Tim and Eric. And what do we do? We do whatever we dream up. We shoot it, and it goes on there. We can fail. We can do well. It's total no freedom. No offense, but it sounds like some fucking commie gobbledygook. You got me, Norm. I mean, I've never heard the word collective. Without I know, but um, Leon Daniel Trotsky. puts. Oh, Kassam. I'm sorry, Norm. <laughs> I've got an acid tongue. <laughs> you do. You're an acid-tongued Arab. He yeah. understand. He knows what he's doing, and he's making fun of everybody he's talking to, and he doesn't care. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, just if you're out there, I mean, if if you're watching this in ten years, Norm Macdonald just passed away last month. And uh, Norm Macdonald is, like we were talking about before we started recording, hidden gem that's only gotten better like wine with his last few years. He's been doing this fucking podcast that's just like his, his best few bits have been in the last few years. And uh, that's why we're on about him. But uh, it's probably because I'm getting to the end of my, my notes about Boogie Nights. You know, I could talk about Boogie Nights for four and a half hours. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It, there's so much stuff that goes on in every single scene, and like we said, it's the it's the costuming, the music, the acting, the set design, the camera work, everything is just like how did he nail so much stuff? And and as I'm going back looking through this, there are so many things that are perfect and awesome. Why hasn't this been been in my top five for the rest of my uh, existence? It's probably because I wasn't mature enough to actually grasp everything that was going on in that stew. Yeah, and it's also, I think, like, we saw it so young, you kind of take it for granted. You're yeah. just like, oh, Boogie Nights is there. It's there. Right. You know, and, and it's just part of your diet. Like, you're like, yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like you know, broccoli. It's like, yeah, it's part of my diet. Like, I eat broccoli. Right. And as I, I watch I, Boogie Nights. As I listened back through the soundtrack, it was the same thing. It was like, all those songs have been part of my musical diet for my entire life. And I I've taken for granted that they're there. And, and songs like... Mama told me not to come and spill wine and and uh, Roller Girls theme song by Melanie. All these songs they've been in other pop culture things, but they're so deeply rooted in Boogie Nights for me. And you know, it, I think that's a great way to put it. Is that I saw Boogie Nights. I 
I ingested it, I absorbed it at such a young age that I've just taken it and its aesthetic and its soundtrack and everything for granted. And I haven't even given it enough credit for how much it's informed my style, my aesthetic, my being as a person. Mm-hmm. And yeah, watching it now with the critical eye, taking notes, appreciating it as a piece of art definitely has weaseled its way into my top five. You know, I'm so I'm so glad that we did that. I'm so glad that you suggested this. And I'm so also really uh, happy that I feel like it actually stood the test of time. Yeah. Because as, as you had said earlier, like with like, you know, you know, we go back and watch Total Recall, Tombstone, things like that. You're just like, okay, you know, they're, they're, they're movies we like. And I don't would no, make no apologies about liking them. But I understand what is going on. Like, I get it. Like... And when you watch something like Boogie Nights, and like you know, just like Dan, like I've watched it like four or five times in the past couple of weeks, it is so engrossing. It's so like I can't even I you know when are you watching the same movie over a few week period where you're laughing and you're finding new things to laugh and new things to enjoy, and new things to discover and appreciate and respect about something, like it is that layered, and and I, and I think about it as like. He's a he's a fucking he's just fucking twenty six years old. He made this that, movie. That was the most mind blowing thing going back to me was recognizing how early this was in his career and how young he was when he made it. That blew my fucking mind and it made me feel completely impotent in all of my creative endeavors. And right? you know what? Yeah. I have to say, PTA, PT Anderson. Hey, dude, if you're out there watching this, and I know you fucking are, okay, uh, you're a great filmmaker. I mean, they're, they're, you, you, I actually think you're underrated. You should be up there with fucking hacks like Steven Spielberg. You know why Steven Spielberg is famous? Because he's a great workman. Because he knows how to yes. run a set. He knows how to run a set. And he knows how to frame a scene. And he knows how to tell a story. He read a, he, you, know why, you know why Steven he, Spielberg's famous? Because he read a hero with a thousand faces. <laughs> well, that, and he understands the power of sentimentality. Everything about what he, like I I'm actually not a huge Spielberg guy, um, and I've gone back in my older years, like recently I've watched E.T. I don't like E.T. I don't think it's a good movie, uh, but what I do understand I understand why people like it though. It is just poured on with sentimentality and nostalgia before it was even a thing. Like so, we live in a culture now where nostalgia is king. Everything is yeah. about. Something you recognize from when you grew up. Steven Spielberg got early in on that because he's like, even Indiana Jones, old serials. Fucking E.T., 1950s, like, kind of like alien abduction stuff. Or just talking to aliens. That was a big thing for people that would have been his age at the time. You know, like Schindler's List. <laughs> Very nostalgic for the hog. Not get me started. <laughs> I almost sent you I almost sent you a copy of Schindler's List <laughs> just as a I, joke to this day <laughs> I think that the episode of Zubox goes to the movies with me you and Sarah doing Schindler's List is one of the best <laughs> episode of Zubox goes to the movies it's never going to be filmed okay <laughs> we could do it we could it would, it would have to be like I'd have to only play it on D live like twice a year yeah and if anybody captured it that's their business yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, um, but yeah, no, I I understand what you're saying about because I I think 
I think Spielberg is like kind of overrated, but I do understand his appeal. Like I get it, like that he taps into something that is nostalgic for the boomer generation, and that's why that's why everything he's made like post two thousand has not been really that good. In fact, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ready Player a- One. He made this movie, Ready Player One. It's like a rep- reprehensible piece of like ephemeral trash. That is actually a very like dystopian and weird. And his movie, have, did you see Ready Player One? No. Well, okay. I said no. I, I hold on. I watched the first fifteen minutes of it. And I was like, this looks like a cum sock. <laughs> like if 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 a movie was a cum sock, it would be this. So I turned it off. Okay. So Ready Player One, the movie itself, in a meta textual sense, is the bad guy of its own movie. The movie is trying to tell you that it's railing against people taking advantage of nostalgia and then is that thing. It is the very thing that it says is evil. It is the weirdest, most incoherent piece of dog shit I've seen in a long time. Maybe I actually watched that new Ryan Reynolds movie, what, Free Guy? That, That comes pretty close. Free Guy comes pretty close for gamer generation. But Ready Player One is a reprehensible movie. It's a it's reprehen- it's like it's evil. It is a bad thing that he did. And I will never forgive him. <laughs> Even after Indiana Jones 4, I will never forgive him. Well, no, I mean, I mean you're right. Uh, Steven Spielberg makes, you know, beef stew. He makes dinty more beef stew. Yeah. And you know, look, he he works off of sentimentality. Paul Thomas Anderson works off of polyester, okay? And disco. <laughs> Look, to steal another thing from this video that I found on YouTube a couple of days ago that was like details that you missed in Boogie Nights, and that little uh, uh, choreographed dance scene to Machine Gun by the Commodores, mm-hmm. the DJ at that club is a black midget. I've never noticed that fucking shit, dude. In 20 years of watching this movie, I never fucking noticed that. And that why? Because I'm so transfixed on the cast of the movie doing this like disco dance together and having a great time. But doesn't that kind of endear you to the movie? Because you're like, if I made this movie, I would do the weird, same yeah. weird kind of shit. And I'd, I, be the, I'd be the guy that'd be like, can I get a black midget to be a DJ? He, Just for, and never, and never fucking address it. Never talk about it. Yes. Never whatever. And I think that he had the smarts to know that people are going to be so focused on the stars in the movie doing this dance routine on the dance floor, yeah. they're never going to notice the black midget who's the DJ. No, but that's listen. That's what makes a real consummate artist is when you're doing things to entertain yourself. Yes. That is what I want. When I watch a movie, when I listen to uh, an album, whatever, I want your worldview. I want your perspective. I don't want you to fucking tell me something I already know or whatever. Like, I want your vision. I want your thing. I want to see the world through your eyes. I don't want, like, myself regurgitated to me. Like, I don't want that shit. The attention to detail down to the character level, like, again, I keep stealing stuff from this because it was the last video I watched before we did this, and it revealed a bunch of shit that even watching this with my Zoobox eye, I didn't fucking catch. In the opening scene of the movie, when, uh, uh, not Philip Seymour Hoffman. 
but um, not John C. Riley, but fucking Little Bill walks out to his uh, car at yeah. the end of the scene where they're getting out of the club, and uh, Luis Guzman is telling everybody good night, and I'll see you tomorrow, Mamacita, and all that shit. Yeah. You see Little Bill in the background walk over to his car and pull a parking ticket out uh, from underneath his windshield. Oh, my God, which is so perfect. This dude can't even win in the background of a background of a shot that is just an establishing shot. That's like amazing. A little tiny attention to the detail of this man's cuckoldery. This man is even cucked by the meter maid. That's amazing. I, I did not know that. That's I, incredible. I, I didn't notice it either. I had to watch a YouTube video to have it pointed out to me. That's incredible. Like, like uh, that, that's fucking so wild. Oh, my God. It's because it's so perfect. It is yes. so perfect. It is the perfect foreshadowing yeah. of everything you're about to see. Yes, and, and he's all disappointed. You know, he just spent the night at the club with his friends, and, you know, he's trying to get the shot for the movie tomorrow, and Jack Horner's not even giving him the time of day. How about the day after the day after tomorrow? And he's going, what are you talking about, a low-key deal, Jack? Should I contact the camera guy? Should I contact the light guy? And then he walks out, and he's got a fucking $5 ticket for fucking yeah. parking. While, while so perfect. the best of my love is playing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something I love, and dude, fucking one of my favorite songs since I was a kid. And I, like you said, I take it for granted because it's just always been part of the soundtrack of my life. But like I was singing it at work today, and people don't even recognize that song. And that song is one of the hottest jams that's ever been fucking recorded. Like yeah. I listen as an adult, I listen to production because I understand after years of recording music how fucking hard it is to get that magic sound on yeah. tape. And when you listen to the the breakdown of that song after they sing the chorus, when they're doing the do 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 do, ah, my love, my love, you hear this piano drop in the background and this swell of the other. Oh my and the god! The production is just so sweet, it's honey and perfect. And and you, and you know how they recorded it too, like in such live. like in ways that were like live and like. Live. You would think it would be caveman shit, right? Like and, it's and, and I didn't have my appreciation for disco until we were like halfway through the IZA and we started trying to jam on some like Curtis Mayfield funk and uh, like Bobby Womack and shit. You know, obviously funk, not disco, but a precursor to disco. Funk and disco are so fucking hard to play. Mm -hmm. Like you don't realize until you actually go in and try to play it as a musician. Disco is one oh, of those. You, you used to have to. You used to have to be fucking talented. Yeah. To fucking make it. That the, like the tape is rolling. You need to hit that. And when you listen to old funk and disco tracks, they're at the same exact beat per minute at the beginning of. The, you listen to an Al Green track. He's at the same exact beat per minute at the beginning of the song as he is at the end, because they had professional musicians playing that background track. And yeah. one of the things that's that I love about actually the the uh, the common is it the Commodore song? It's the song that it's the machine gun song that they're playing when they're dancing on the dance floor. That's a rare funk song where they actually get ahead of themselves in the beats per minute. Like they, like they start getting so into the groove that the song speeds up a little bit. And like all the, all those funk and disco tracks from the 70s are so on in precision from a musical perspective and they don't get the credit that they deserve because they're from like a drug culture. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's one of the great things about this movie is that it takes that disco, like that disco music that's supposed to be a joke 
it puts it right out in the front and says, look, this is the best. Here's the best of disco. Boom. Well, that's what it, that's, it is, is part and parcel with the movie because it's about earnestness. It's yeah. about or being earnest and meaning yeah. it. Yeah. You can be doing silly, what people think is silly shit, but you gotta fuck. If you're doing it, man, you gotta fucking bring it. You gotta bring yourself, bring that spirit, bring that meaning to it. And that's, you know, we like, we, you know, cause just like anybody, like you think of, like, you know, growing up listening to disco and hearing it on like all these stations and stuff, you're very dismissive of it, like you said. But like when you really start thinking about it, you really start thinking about the production side of that work. It's like kind of astounding. It's gobsmacking. Like just the strings that just the strings that go on a disco track or like a funk track, like Curtis Mayfield, a modern musician wouldn't even know where to start. They wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. They would have no fucking idea. Like they had people that were good at what they did. It was not all producer driven. Like producers played a role for sure in terms of like honing in on a sound or like being able to have a good ear and understanding what worked and didn't work. But you had to have people that actually could do it. That could actually make that sound live. Yeah. With microphones in front of them. Even like you take even some of the biggest bands of like rolling the rolling stones. Like, you know, they like they hang out in a studio for six months dicking around but they still made, you know, uh, they still made fucking uh, Paint It Black, and they still made uh, Mother's Little Helper, and they still made uh, uh, Goodbye Horses. Or not he, Goodbye Horses, but like, uh, not, it's not Goodbye Horses. Oh my god, that's a completely different song. Time is all my song. Wild but, Horses, Wild Horses. That's the song. Yes. Um, it's embodied in that scene with Alfred Molina. Where I mean, the three songs that they choose to pick in that scene are not—they are not deep songs. No, it's fucking Sister Christian, Jesse's Girl, and Ninety Nine Love Balloons. That's what makes it so funny. <laughs> but, but, but also, those are three songs that have absolutely perfect production. Yeah, perfect. Like the, it's the kind of song that you can turn up as loud as you possibly can on a great sound system, and it sounds like crystal, dude. It yeah. sounds fucking perfect. And that's because the production, and that, like as an older dude, production has become so much more important to me. And when you listen to a song like Jesse's Girl, it's fucking perfect. There's like, it's flawless. It's literally yes. flawless. Yeah. And a dude, like a coked up, freebasing dude like Alfred Molina who has a great sound system would totally be into that because the bass sounds great. The guitar sounds great. The, the flourishes on the harmonies sound great. Yeah. And you have to have a really expensive sound system to pull that all out, but it's a shitty fucking hollow song. I know. Yeah. But like, <laughs> it is what we bring to it though. Right. Like it, it's like, but, but it's, that's why those songs are perfect for that scene. Like, that's why they're perfect. Like, it is everything that the movie is about just wrapped in every, from just, like, cinematically, sonically. Like, it is just informing everything and folding in on itself because of those songs, because of how perfect and shallow they are. Right. How perfect and shallow they are actually, like, plays into everything you've seen uh, in the movie before that into that scene. That's why I think it is the perfect scene. Yeah. It's like perfect. 
Well, because all the characters in the movie are exactly what you said, perfect and shallow. They're yeah. like physically perfect and completely fucking shallow. And 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 they you know they're the embodiment of these songs like Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield, which is a fucking go- dude. It is a bag of Doritos. Okay, or as I think I said in the latest episode of our uh, one thousand RPM, like this song is a piece of American cheese that's made out of like canola oil. Mm-hmm. Like, it tastes really good on a burger, but it's garbage and there's nothing to it. No matter what he says, no matter what Rick Springfield says, and and Rick, hey, Ricky Springfield, he's a buddy of mine. Like again, like every every line reading that Alfred Molina does is perfect. But like, I know Ricky Springfield, he's a buddy of mine. And you can imagine that like this dude might actually be a buddy of Ricky Springfield because he hangs out selling coke at like the gay dance club. Yeah, at that time period for sure. Yeah. But like it's just so great, like that, like that line is just another little tiny lay. Yeah, Ricky Springfield, he's a buddy of mine. Like, fuck, man, every every part of this movie is so layered and so beautiful. And look, I gotta give PTA his uh, fucking. Uh, I gotta give him his props, man. When I, when I revisited this movie as a grown ass man, it only made me love it more. So many times when we do these Zoobox goes to the movies, by the time we actually get to the episode. I've I've uh, spoiled it on Instagram enough, and I've watched the movie enough, and I've listened to the source material on audiobook enough, and I'm done with it, and I'm ready to put it back on the shelf. But with this, I want to fucking keep watching Boogie Nights. I know! I the three-hour version of Boogie Nights. I want to hang out with these characters even more. You no, know, I, I completely agree. I completely agree with that sentiment, because they're, they're, most of the time, when uh, especially when uh, uh, Dan Prophet and I do this, I'm fucking done with that movie for a good hot two years. Yeah, like I'm we done. Get the, we get in there like 13 inches deep. Yeah, no, I we really do, and that's why I love doing it with uh, with you because like you're gonna do it in the same way that I'm gonna do it, and we're gonna watch it for like two weeks, and we're gonna be like taking notes, and we're gonna be having fun, we're figuring it out. But like by the end of it. You're so fucking burnt out on it. Like by the like by the end of the conversation, there are a few, like especially like something like Starship Troopers or whatever. I was just like, I don't ever, I don't need to yeah. see this for like like five six years. I remember happily putting Starship Troopers back up on the shelf and saying, I will revisit you in a couple of years. But dude, I'm going to be listening to the soundtrack of this flick for weeks now. Do you think that, will this inspire you to kind of like check out, like 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 revisit? There will be blood, or yeah, because this uh, you know Paul Thomas Anderson. Look, he is a bit pretentious, and I've always oh, been a sure. person who sniffs out pretension, and I don't have time for it. Like especially now as an adult, I run my own company, I have a part time job, I have a kid, I have a wife, I have all kinds of responsibilities. I don't have time for this shit. I don't have time for fucking fra- frogs raining from the sky. Okay. <laughs> that I have this, this and understanding Paul Thomas Anderson's vision from such a young age. Like there's, you can't watch Boogie Nights and realize how young he was when he made it and not admit that he's an absolute fucking genius, at least on some level. So yes, oh, I sure. think that I'm going to revisit Probably a lot of his catalog. Probably Magnolia. Because, dude, I haven't watched Magnolia since I was, like, 19. Well, it's on Netflix right now. It's still there. <clears throat> so, I, I, you know, and, the, and the, what oh I got... Oh, my God, dude. Netflix. If you watch it, dude, if you... Oh, my... Well, this could oh be I a series. This could be a series, Dan. Listen, when I got... 
what I got out of Magnolia when I was 19 was the Tom Cruise lyric uh, uh, line where he's like, respect the cock and tame the cunt. Tame, tame the cunt. That's all that I got out of oh, uh, it. All right, all right. No, but I, 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 after watching Boogie Nights, like, like I said, it moved itself up in the ladder of my appreciation. And you know, there's no way that you can look at this and say Paul Thomas Anderson is a hack or this is a fluke. Yeah. He's got something about him where he understands cinema. He just understands it. He does. And he and he and he's had different periods in his life. Like Boogie Nights and Magnolia are like a pair. Then there's the like I said before, Punch Drunk Love is like a stopgap where he starts becoming more minimalist. And then there's There Will Be Blood, which is like his most minimalist movie. If you ever watch the movie Phantom Thread, which is the other movie he did with Daniel Day Lewis, watch it with Caitlin. Watch it with Caitlin. I would just say that. I think it is a movie that all married couples should have, or married couples or long-term committed couples should watch. That's, I really do. I really do believe that. And I know that it sounds stupid and pretentious, but that movie speaks to things that you will only understand if you are um, like uh, with like somebody that you are in a long-term relationship with. And, it is it is it is very powerful to me. I, I found it a very powerful movie. Like Phantom Thread is a movie like my wife has been begging me. Like she's like, Can we do Phantom Thread for Zoobox Goes to the Movies? I'm just like really hesitant to open that door because I'm like, Sarah, I'm like, this is such a deep conversation. Like I <laughs> like this is such a deep and we both know it too. We both want we went to see the that in the movie theater. And we both had tears in her eyes at the end of the movie. I was I was in the movie theater. She went to the bathroom. I started crying, started crying. I was just like, "What the fuck did I? Oh my god! What the fuck did I just watch? How am I gonna process? How am I gonna talk about this with like my wife? Like, how am I gonna? How am I gonna? Like, are we gonna be this honest? Right. And it was a beautiful moment because we were because we were just like, let's just. It actually was like a good thing for our relationship. It made our love life so much better. And this isn't, you know, go out and have sex with 10 million people and, you know, how to get a girl off. It's about how to get your wife off. You know, if, if only, you know, people could have been doing this before, we could have saved a million relationships. You know, I've saved thousands. In a weird well, way. You know, maybe Paul Thomas Anderson's more of a genius than I realized. And, uh, you know, like, uh, unlike Norm MacDonald when he pointed out to Harvey Weinstein that this other dude wasn't a genius. Maybe, maybe uh, PTA is, and I have to give him another shot. Because you know what? I His specific brand of angst, I had to abandon at some point in my late 20s. Because I was, yeah. too, busy work, I was too busy working for a living. Yeah. But, no, but, you know. but his angst, like, so there's the Magnolia angst, which is Boogie Nights turned up to 12. And then there's, there's like, Phantom Thread, which is not angsty. It's just, like, so brutally honest. About the idea of being with somebody that has <laughs> being with people like if you are in a couple and you have your separate aspirations and how those things work and how you compromise as a couple right. to be to be together. And it was it's so honest that it is a little scary. And I don't say I don't say that shit lightly. I, I'm not like some. I like well I'm artsy fartsy in my own way, but like I, I'm not like. It, it's just something that spoke to me on such a weird level 
that I don't like really even now know how to process. So when I think about doing a podcast with my wife, talking to you and talking to everybody else, I don't really know how to feel about it. I don't know if I want to open that door because I don't know what that conversation yeah. is going to be. Because it's so honest. It's, and, and, and like I have, I have a good relationship with my wife. Like we're very honest with each other about our intentions, feelings, et cetera, et cetera. But even then, I'm just like, ooh, fuck. Like, are we going to really, we going to go there? You want to go there in front of people? Like, right. I, and I've said that. I'm like, you want to go here in front of people? Like, because we'll, I'll go there. Like, this is about production. This is about, like, if we're going to capture something, let's capture it real. Like, do you want to expose yourself that in that way? And uh, that movie definitely brings it out. So, like, yeah, definitely get together with Kaylin. You know, put, put, Theo, to, put Theo to bed. Uh, hunker up, watch Phantom Thread. <laughs> I think out. you'll like it. I th- I know you'll like it. I know you will like that movie. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I'd probably have a better appreciation for the director after taking a look at this. I mean, this and Magnolia was, you know, and like the half of Punch Drunk Love that I actually watched was mostly what I have of him. And I really want to go back and and uh, appreciate more because he clearly knows what he's doing. And and I appreciate people who understand their craft. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think even if you don't, like, end up, like, loving his movies or whatever, I think, like, you would respect what he's done. Right. In a weird, in, is, in a weird way. I think, like, I think The Master is something Dan Prophet needs to watch. I think There Will Be Blood is something you need to revisit. That's two podcasts in a row that you've suggested The Master, so I definitely think I'm going to check it out. Oh, well, if you're a fan of Philip, uh, well, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Sex Phoenix. Extraordinaire. Yes. Especially Joaquin Phoenix. You guys like the Joker? You ever see the Joker? You ever see that movie? that movie where he danced on the steps in a clown makeup? I think so. I think so. I think he calls himself the Joker guy. I don't know. Like he's, crazy. Uh, he's he goes over crazy there. and he kills a bunch of people or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy asked him. He says, "You think this is funny? You think this is a thing?" And then I he shot him it. in the face. He I shot him in the face. One of the better movies. It was. I liked it. I liked it because it speaks to me. It's how I am. I want to go out and shoot people that don't Dude, like it's me. Crazy. Like every single day, I want to shoot somebody. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It's wild. It's a Joker. But anyway, I think that's a, not only is that the end of my notes for uh, Boogie Nights, I had a couple other ones that weren't, you know, they weren't so important, but also my teeth are floating from the amount of urine that's actually backed up in my system, which if I was on the set of a Jack Horner movie, this would be a great time to piss all over Juliette Lewis, or excuse oh, me, yeah. Juliette Moore. Well, Juliette Lewis, she would have been the bottom feeder there, like, hanging out. Yeah. She would have been like, you know, like, hey, I'm a good actress. Like, no, dude, you were in Cape Fear. That's a good movie. Uh, <laughs> anyways. Yeah. When it comes down to it, like, Boogie Nights has been with me for my entire life. It's a great fucking flick. It only gets better as you age. And real quickly, before we finish, I have to tell you my story. Do it. Uh, so when we were in New Mexico, uh, me and a couple of my stoner buddies, uh, Trish and Mona, I think Mona was there. Uh, we wanted like New Year's Eve was coming up and we just wanted to like, Trish had never seen Boogie Nights. So she was like, dude, we got to watch this movie. 
And I was like, yeah, sure. It's fucking New Year's Eve. It's something to do. We'll smoke a bunch of pot. We'll watch Boogie Nights, whatever. And so we, we start watching it. And then as the night progresses, this other kid from work calls me, who's like a younger kid who thinks that I'm like awesome. He like has yeah, this misinterpretation yeah, yeah. of me that I'm like fucking awesome yeah. because I'm like clever at work sometimes. And he is at this like real New Year's party with his like really hot girlfriend and a couple of her like really hot girls like like hot like dude hot fucking action to the max okay yeah. these fucking kids if Floor Gondoli had gotten uh, a he would have put them on 35 millimeter he would have put them on 35 millimeter not on tape yeah. yeah so so me and Trish and Mona are just watching Boogie Nights at my house smoking a fuck ton of weed like just killing it because we're all older so fucking new year's eve doesn't mean shit to us anymore you know what i mean yeah but then this kid i remember his name was john i forget what his last name was but he calls me up he's like what are you guys doing dude i'm like yeah we're just like watching a movie at my house and whatever you can come on over if you want so they leave like these kids who are having fun on like a new year's eve party like leave their actual new year's eve party to come to my house to like smoke pot in my dark living room and watch boogie nights <laughs> and it, we didn't time it this way but it ended up perfectly being timed that as the countdown happened mark Wahlberg was giving his speech at the end of the movie and just as it turned the new year midnight he pulls out his big fucking prosthetic oh shit and like for me, Mona and Trish, it was like, yeah, like holy shit, that was fucking perfectly timed, bro. Fucking smoke another joint. Look <laughs> for all these other kids that were in my living room. It was like, oh my god, we left like this awesome New Year's party to come here and watch this guy pull out his prosthetic cock. Oh my god. And I remember John being like, no, like Dan's awesome. He's like awesome from work because like to oh, this like kid, the sad like, the saddest thing you can hear. Yeah, because like, 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 to, to this fucking kid, he's like 18 years old, and like I'm the older dude at work. Like I'm like going back to the uh, beginning of the episode. Like he's the young teenager, and I'm like the older teenager, Dirk Diggler, and he thinks that I'm really cool, but I'm fucking not. And like he brought all of his friends, all of his like hot girls friends, to my house to watch Boogie Nights. And see fucking Mark Wahlberg pull his plastic dick out at midnight. <laughs> and me, Mona, and Trish are just, like, giggling our fucking asses off. And he's trying to explain to these hot girls, like, that he's still cool somehow. <laughs> so that, like, when it, when it goes from, like, stages and eras in my life of Boogie Nights, that's probably the one that I remember most fondly is, like, watching Boogie Nights on New Year's and totally spoiling all these dumb bitches' fucking New Year's plans. <laughs> with Mark Wahlberg's fake cock. Hell yeah, and, dude! That's the perfect. That's a, that's a that is the perfect story to end this episode. Yeah, that's the and perfect story. Teenage John trying to be like, no, Dan's really cool. Exactly. <laughs> 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 you don't like Mark Wahlberg's fake cock? This guy's rocks. Come on, look what he look at what his gifts, his bounty. Right. But in like, but in like, me, Trish, and Mona's reality, like, we are really cool. Like, you guys, you guys just left that stupid party to come watch Boogie Nights with us. Like, fuck you. Yeah, and we rock. We're watching Boogie Nights. What were you doing? Like, fucking standing around, hoping somebody would talk to you at a party. Get out of here. Literally, literally.
But anyway, like that's my final anecdote. And like, yeah, I mean, anybody's still watching it at three or four hours and however many edits you end up making to this. Dude, it, it literally one of the best movies ever made. I'm not joking. You know, it's, it's impressive. It's impressive, especially, I think, for people of our generation to see the distillation of everything that we love. Um, especially if you've watched episodes of uh, Zubox Goes to Movies in the past with Dan and I, like we're very big on like character actors, these kinds of sprawling movies. And this is a movie that like, I think both of us wish we could have made. Like we yeah. wish we could have been these, that so guy that did this movie, you know? I wish I could have been the soundtrack director that put all these songs together. I don't even, yeah. I, I don't even want to fucking get down to the, I don't think I'm worthy to make this movie. I maybe might have been able to put the soundtrack together. I feel the same way. Exactly. Like you're you're standing and and you know what? Young filmmakers, I know some younger guys that are have aspirations of being filmmakers watch these things. Fucking wear your influences on your sleeve and be proud of it and fucking go for it. It right. will always be your thing. Right. It's always going to be you. It's always going to be you. So go for it. Anyways, Thank you, Dan. This was a great conversation. One of my favorites that we've ever done, actually. I think so. Yeah. Um, so, everybody, if you'd like to know more about Zoobox, there's a bunch of links in the description. You can check out Zoobox on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, DLive. Go check out our DLive. Go follow me on DLive. I do uh, a weekly nightcap uh, where I talk about weird internet videos. Usually I get sucked into some rabbit hole. Um, last week was about... Sex dolls that had to go Odyssey exclusive. Had to be an Odyssey exclusive. So, um, anyways, thank you, Dan. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll we'll talk to you guys next time. Adios, amigos. I should be careful. Scotty. What? What do you mean, what? Do me a favor, just mind your business, please. What the fuck? Sorry. Anyway...